Where we are igniting you to transform humanity. Transform humanity. Transform to transform humanity. Yo, 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 yo. What's up? This is the Change Element Podcast where we are igniting you to transform humanity. This is where entrepreneurs, leaders, and visionaries meet to talk about big ideas and small steps. This is the intersection of insight and action. And today is element number 14, titled The Entrepreneur's Dilemma. And today, Tim is going to intro this show for us. So here's Tim. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Change Element Podcast Show. My name is Tim Bartlett, and I have the pleasure of sharing with you an interview that I conducted with Adrian Kaler, an executive coach and co-founder of Novus Global, a coaching and consulting firm. He's been incredibly successful, and you're going to learn in this interview why. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, we actually conducted this interview many months ago. Uh, I initially had met up with him uh, as part of a different project, but I really wanted to share this interview with you guys because I think our audience here at The Change Element can really get a ton of great insight from what Adrian has to say. I mean, it really is the uh, sort of the epitome of what we've been talking about here at the Change Element Podcast Show. So this recording that you're going to be hearing is from several months ago, but man, as impactful today as it ever was, I know every time I listen to this interview, I take something new away from it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this awesome conversation with Adrian Kaler. Adrian, hey, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, you know, you and I, we go back a little bit. We partnered together a couple years ago on, on some projects. Um, so I know a little bit about your background, but I thought maybe we could start with you just giving us a little bit of your backstory. You know, where, where have you been and, and what's led you up to this point? Yeah. So I, um, Adrian Kaler, 34 and a half. We're still counting halves when we're 34. Uh, I'll be 35 in July. Uh, born and raised in a small town in southern Illinois. Small town being like 8,000 people when everybody's home. Um, so I grew up in that town and then I went to school, played football in college, a place called Millican University. Um, studied actually nursing undergrad. So I have a Bachelor of Science in nursing. And um, then I moved up to Chicago, was chasing a girl and uh, got a job in the city and loved it. It, it, it. As soon as I got the taste of an urban environment, I thought, this is what I want for the rest of my life. Yeah. I just love the complexity of life and culture and background and thought and and beliefs. And and I loved, I from as long as I can remember, I loved getting to know what people were thinking. Mm-hmm. And that was just fascinating to me, especially if even two people that came from the same background but you know, had very different outputs in life. I wanted to know what, what type of thinking was happening in the one person that got great results and what type of thinking was happening in the one person that didn't get great results and what kind of attitude came out of the thought process. I was just always getting to know people has been at the core of what brings me joy. Yeah. So uh, I loved the city. The relationship didn't work out. We broke up two weeks after I got there. Um, so therefore, I was in Chicago with I didn't know anybody. And uh, my best friend, my first two best friends in Chicago were homeless guys. Cool. Just because I was walking the streets, man. I don't know this place. And these two guys, Crockett and Bra- Crockett and Blackjack, uh, they gave me the tour of the city. And we listened to Cro- Crockett uh, 
it was a guy in a wheelchair. Picture like Tom Cruise on Born on the Fourth of July, like yeah. how he looked like, and yeah. then picture it with but a electronic chair and a little stereo that he always had Elvis playing, and we'd go around the streets, and he'd point stuff out to me, and anyway, we became buddies. So I was there loving my time in Chicago. I, I uh, never thought I'd be like a career nurse. For me, the nursing path was um, a doorway into lots of other opportunities. So And some stability. I mean, my, my dad loved it because you know, I'd always be able to find a job and that kind of thing. But for me, at that point, I thought um, I could travel anywhere in the world and work. I could, um, I could get into places maybe that Americans couldn't get into because I could mm-hmm. offer something like with my hands, sure. tangible. So, I mean, coming, I come from a faith background, so that was a big thing for me, and just helping to spread um, life and love to even some communities that haven't heard about. For me, I just, I come from a core belief that God's after us, God loves us, and, and if, uh, if we don't know that just because we haven't heard the right story yet. Mm. And so, for me, nursing was a pathway to give me lots of access to any culture I wanted to get into. And I was with a team in India um, and they, I, as a prep for this team, they'd given us a, a, a CD. Remember those? Gave me a CD with this talk, this like little a sermon or like this uh, speech mm-hmm. by this guy named Erwin McManus. But I'm laying on a cot in India and listening to this guy talk about what how he views faith and how how juxtapose that next to um, what religion is and what the purpose of what religion is versus what the purpose of the life action of Jesus is. And that just blew my top. Like I was just, wow. Okay. I got to learn more. So I came back, read every book the guy wrote and then, uh, uh, told myself that, you know, purpose of my twenties was to go get around the right kind of people. Mm. Number one purpose, get around the right kind of people that were living the type of life I wanted to live. I wasn't ever, uh, this is who I want to be when I grew up kind of guy. I could, it was never clear. Like when I was a teenager, I didn't think, oh, I want to be a you know firefighter or a businessman or something like that. That just seemed like, um, for me, that would have been just been a made-up answer to satisfy mm-hmm. some adult. Um, so in the 20s, I just thought I want to be around healthy folks that have this similar view of the world that I wanted to have, even if I didn't have it yet. So anyway, so this guy, Irwin, was like an iconic person for this type of conversation he was having with himself, type of conversation he was having with the world that was really inspiring to me. And I thought, okay, if there's a community that lives out these values, I want to go find out what that community is. And there was. It was called Mosaic. So I came out and did an internship, like a three-month internship at Mosaic. Um, and uh, did some nursing. Did, came out here, did a little bit of nursing work, then did this, took time off, did an the internship. And then they uh, crafted what they called the Protégé Program, um, which was a 21-month program where you go get a master's in theology and get to go start something and see if it works, see if it doesn't work. There was kind of this natural, creative, entrepreneurial spirit to this spiritual community that's pretty rare inside the spiritual realm uh, and belief systems of most evangelical, quote-unquote, evangelical America. Yeah. Um, so very pro-risk, very pro-get-out-there, very pro-faith, quote-unquote, which was awesome for me because I didn't fit in, I don't fit really well in highly structured, organized, top-down systems because yeah. the way I'm crafted, I challenge things a lot just naturally. And I, I'll just speak to authority as if we're peers, which is un- inappropriate in a real top-down system. But I believe in the uh, connectedness of humanity and we all at least get to honor each other with questions. And if, if you're a leader and you can't take questions, then you don't deserve to be a leader. Yeah, that's good. So... I met a guy that was like 
if you were to create a crossbreed of like Jesus and Crocodile Dundee, that's who this guy was. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and he was like, he was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was getting done, I was finishing up with that protege program. And I, my next question was, okay, great. 20s were about, you know, that season of my life was about finding the right types of people. Now is there a specific leader I want to position myself under? And I thought this was my guy. His name is Dan Moyer. You guys can look him up. He's a really great guy. He lived in Southern Africa for all of his life, and his parents were missionaries there. And he, you know, he would he could teach people how to weld, and he could also, you know, build a bridge and plant churches all over Southern Southern Africa. So an inspirer of people, but also really help people in the day to day, helping them put their lives together or learn how to survive. Mm. Uh, which I just thought that was awesome. So I, but I didn't do that because then Mosaic said, "Hey, would you stay?" Because I was done with the project program, but hey, we've got a place for you here. You've been organizing people to do service work into the city. Would you stay and make that real and keep us keep that conversation going in the community? And so I was honored to stay. Um, and so I worked in Mosaic for a number of years um, and then um, met a guy that had just brand new had come to faith that he came from um, a wealthy family. And so he was now inspired to do something with his wealth. The, he'd always had the wealth just because of who he was and the family he was born into, but now uh, there was a message that he wanted to make with that wealth. And so that was my next fun gig. And so I got to quit Mosaic and help this guy start this private foundation and, and then took him around the world to help him figure out what to do, to find out what he was passionate about, really, not to find where we should spend the money, but really find what connected with him and really what was the vision that was worth his life and his investment. And so we did that for a couple of years, and um, there's obviously lots of details we can talk about about that. Um, and out of that, I, I really found a sweet spot for me, which was, you know, engaging um, with people in the moments of transition. We did most of our work in the prison system, okay. and working with lifers, guys that had really blown it, the, the bad guys, the guys that had hurt people. Yeah. Um, and working with them to help them recraft who they are in light of what they're committed to versus in light of what they've done. Um, which is a powerful skill set for a lifer, for sure, because, you know, if anybody gets out of prison, if they still think like a prisoner, they'll go do the crimes that are necessary to get them back to what was comfortable for them. But on the other hand, if they get a vision for their life where they can actually start living it right now, then they're, they might be in prison, but they're actually free. So that was the... Uh, the opportunity there in that work. And so I'd hired a guy that had been doing executive coaching for 30 years and had had this other nonprofit that works with um, incriminated youth out of out of Boston, Lynn, Massachusetts. He'd been doing that work, you know, with gang leaders for 15 years. So he, I hired him to come in and teach us how to do this and also to do it and be able to watch him and mentor him. And I was a mentor of his, a uh, mentee of his. Right. Um, and so whenever it was time for me to step out of that nonprofit and let the guy that gave the money really start to run it, um, that, was a, that was the sweet spot. That was the next step for me. I really liked engaging in this very specific way with people's mindset, leadership mindset, and opening up possibilities for them that they were always there, they just didn't see them. So now I, I run my own coaching company uh, for two and a half years. So I work with entrepreneurs and, and corporate executives. Um, and teams and anybody inside their culture to help coach and help bring the right conversations to the table. And I'm um, getting ready to start a new coaching company this year with uh, one of my best friends in the world uh, named Jason Jaggard. He and I have been doing similar work. Um, and it's kind of this, why are we doing this alone thing? We, we, we love each other. We love this work. Let's go take on the world together. 
So that's going to start in the next couple months. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. And what's it called? Yeah, and the new, the new entity is going to be called Novus. And the website will be Novus, N-O-V-U-S.global. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, you started by really doing this uh, by yourself. You, you launched an executive coaching business on your own, a very successful one. Uh, and now you're making a shift to working with, with someone else. Now, I know Jason is a good friend of yours, but still, I mean, that's, that's a big decision. Uh, what, what led you to make that decision? Yeah, well, I've, I know for myself, I mean, going alone... I mean, there's lots of benefits to being like a Lone Ranger. And I mean, when I say benefits, I mean like hidden benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think essentially when people are starting things, they might have to go alone for a certain amount of time just because they don't have the revenue to be able to pull somebody on or they might not have a Jason in their life that they really trust and can really build a partnership. Um, so that you, sometimes you need to go alone and to just figure it out, right? I, I, I don't spend any time doing accounting and any bookkeeping now because it takes me 10 hours to do it. And I hate it. I put it off, sending out invoices. I hated that stuff for the first year of my business. Mm-hmm. As soon as I could hire somebody, that's exactly what I hired them to do. Right. Send out all the, you know, paperwork. I, I don't enjoy that stuff at all. Yeah. Um, but there's also, like, I mean, there's hidden benefits of being a Lone Ranger. Like, I don't have to be accountable to anybody. Nobody's in this office with me all day. I could right. be watching YouTube videos. <laughs> of like I was today anyway but you know there's you could like be really unaccountable if you're alone you could really be stuck and nobody know alone and you could really you know cut corners you could really whatever you know and there's there's a level I know that's like that's the choice I'm making when going in with a partner is like oh somebody's going to be in my stuff all the time now yeah and that's you know that's a a loss if you like if you like this the privacy of your own struggle. Mm-hmm. And now my struggle is going to be public. Mm-hmm. You know, at least with him, it'll be more like personal, right? Like, sure, sure. And I'm doing it with one of my best friends, so I feel great about that. Yeah. Uh, but there's some vulnerability in there, like to bring somebody on and say, hey, I want you on the inside of watching how I operate my world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a choice everybody's going to make if they really want to make, if they really want to um, embrace that vulnerability. Um, I know I do. And the reason to do it is we're going to be able to serve more people and make a more sustainable future for our families and maybe someday buy a house in Los Angeles. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah. Um, but it's really possible and we can just, you know, and, and just more fun. You know, he makes me so much better. He's better at talking about me than I'm better at talking, than I'm at sure. talking about myself. We can sell each other really well. Mm-hmm. So that'll be fun. So That's there's awesome. like this, the, the, the fun part is there's like this synergistic multiplier effect of it's not just one plus one but like what like the one plus one equals three idea right um which i'm really excited about yeah when ideas start cranking and and uh, this invisible like uh influence things happen because i'm a really competitive guy so if i get around a really hard charger like jason who's just off the charts brilliant i just want to be smarter you know i want to read more i want to be more conversant i'm really i'm gonna you know i'm just gonna get smarter now, I want to go back to something that you were talking about. You, you had mentioned this friend of yours who, you know, he had this wealth and, and wanted to find some way of using it. And you shared a little bit about how you played a role in helping him find really uh, a vision that was worth not just his money, but his life investment. And I think it's really neat how you ended up finding your way uh, towards uh, serving inmates. And it sounds a little bit to me like the role that you played in really helping him craft his identity is very similar to what 
you guys were doing for these inmates. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you landed there and then what are some of the ways that you guys were able to do that for th- this prison population? Well, I mean, my his charge to me, um, I mean, we were just buddies, right? Like we were, I was just the first guy he met at Mosaic. And so we had just some of his first big conversations about life, this new way of living um, from a spiritual context. I was just the host for those conversations. I was his friend, right? So, um, and as we went all the way around the world and saw um, all the options out there, if it was water crisis or abject poverty or HIV AIDS or, you know, human trafficking or all the things, the ills that are out there that move so many people to do something about it, um, none of that stuff really connected him. You know, right around, what did, you know, just it didn't move him. But, you know, once we got... We got connected to um, a nonprofit here in town that people will know if you're in LA or maybe you've heard about it other places uh, called Homeboy Industries. Um, we got connected to them and a theme really started to pop up about what connected to my friend and it was really giving people a second chance. Like people like that have really blown it, like giving them a second chance. And I think it really connected to his heart because that's what he felt like was happening in his own life mm-hmm. at the time. You know, he had been living however he was living and then from his own like spiritual epiphany, like getting the fact that that God was up to giving him a second chance, no matter how th- tough things were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think he really related to the struggle that these guys were in. And can you conjure up enough belief that I'm worthy of keep uh, to keep living? Mm-hmm. You know, and even just not only just to survive, but actually to go make something beautiful. And am I worthy of that? Right. Mm-hmm. Which I think is part of the entrepreneur's dilemma. To, not to go down a foxhole, but it's like I know myself. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. I know my own character deficiencies. Uh, but yet I'm sticking my neck out, believing that in spite of all that, I can maybe create some value in somebody else's life, even when I know how messed up I am. You know, and I think yeah. so. We, like, we're all on that stretch. Like, can my impact be be even better than like my worst stories about myself? Yeah. That answer is yes, if you want it to be. I mean, we could be haunted by our stories forever mm-hmm. and disqualify ourselves from making that leap. And what if they find out about me? Or what if they, um, what if I'm not smart enough? What, you know, we got all these stories about, oh, I remember that third grade when I was really embarrassed at the spelling bee. <laughs> all that stuff haunts us, right? And unless we just tell them to shut up and get into, uh, get into creating a new story. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we just keep rehashing this past. Um, and therefore, our results are equal to the um, to the outcome of rehashing our past instead of can our results be equal to our imagination? Can our results be equal to our commitment? Can our results be equal to how much love we can give versus how much love we think we deserve? You know, um, and that's when things get exponential and get really beautiful. And that's when people can start over. Mm-hmm. So for this guy's journey, I mean, he connected to these guys that needed a second chance because he really, I think he really identified with them. And I can, you know, hopefully we all can of like, you know, being honest with ourselves about how we've messed up in the past or even perpetual ways that we mess up. If we tell little lies here or, you know, um, want to cut a corner here, hoping somebody's not going to notice whatever our thing is. Um, can we get past that and really believe what that, uh, we're made to go create something important and despite of, or even in spite of, or in the midst of our own personal transformation. So, um, that's really what got us connected to that idea. And once we got connected to that idea, we met some, we met some nuns that were doing some work in prison. So uh, we, I hadn't even been in prison before that, but we followed, we trailed these nuns into prison and got to know this unique subset of prisoners that are lifers. 
um, and really how powerful they are um, from an influence standpoint because they've been in prison for anywhere from, you know, some of them were brand new, but lots of them have been there for decades. So we're literally like the fathers of the prison. So we knew strategically, like if we made a difference with these guys, mm. that they would trickle down. If we influence them really well, they are the influencers. Um, and because they held the culture um, and they kind of set the rules uh, from an influence standpoint. So that was what connected with us as well. And so we came in and immediately not only did some trainings with them, but trained them to be trainers so they could do their own trainings with us not with us not there, uh, which they have. And even right now, I mean, as we speak, there's like 250 guys that are in these like accountability groups talking about their vision, talking about what they're doing not this self-help support group stuff and talking about why, you know, I'm here because I was the wrong color or my dad wasn't around or, you know, my gang's fault or whatever, all their victimized stories that got them there. Mm-hmm. But they're really conversing about what they're committed to creating instead of what they feel like they're left to. Um, so those themes really connected with my friend and really connected with me um, about the creative act. That's good, man. Does that answer your question? No, yeah, it does. And, and it's a great segue actually. Now as one who has made a profession as an executive coach, I mean, you really help people do these things. And, um, the cool thing is, is, I mean, you really have to practice what you preach, right? I mean, in order to be successful and to achieve what you've been able to achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, um, you know, what you've been able to achieve and the success that you've had thus far is really a byproduct of a series of choices that you've made, decisions that you've made. And yeah. with each of those decisions for anybody who is pursuing a business or some entrepreneurial venture, uh, there's risk involved. Mm-hmm. Hindsight is usually the thing that tells us uh, what decisions were good and bad that we've made in the past. But in the moment, every choice we make seems to have some element of of risk. Yeah. I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through how you navigated through the different risks that you had to take in order to to get where you are today, to pursue those passions and and build this business. Um, When I think back at the different transitions you've made, and the moves that you've made, both geographically and vocationally, and there's a lot of decisions to make in there. So how did you do that? How did you navigate through those different risks? For me, I'm really motivated by uh, like the must, like what I really got to go do, you know, and I'm inspired by it. And um, because I think people follow people in life that they don't follow folks that are the most experienced. Uh, or have the right resume. I mean, maybe people, maybe there's some people that do. I, I think it's the vitality test, mm-hmm. you know? So whoever's the most alive, at least that's in my life. If, if I'm like, whoever's the most alive, I'm going to follow them because I don't even know what they're doing, but they're living life in such a way that I want to be around them. And my, even if I don't get it cognitively, my guts get it, like or my soul gets it, is that this person, man or, man or, man or woman, and they're fully alive. And, and, that can grind against us. Like we can judge that stuff um, and like start to judge them or be condescending or they must be, something must be up for them. This guy's a whatever, this girl's a whatever. Um, I worked really hard to get out of any kind of cynic mm-hmm. or skeptic place because those are just self-protected people. Yeah. And so I've lived uh, most of my life in search of life. Mm-hmm. So in some ways that didn't, so it doesn't show up to me as risk in some ways because um, I didn't ever put all my eggs in the bas- in one basket 
Um, that's a silly statement. Uh, what I mean by that is like, I never had some fantasy that like, if this thing has to work, mm. you mm. know, like the move even out of nursing into working at a church, like I didn't feel like, Oh, this is my next, this is my career and I got to make this work forever. I never had that mentality. Um, I just thought, Oh, this is the right thing for now. Mm. And I'm going to throw myself at this for now. So it didn't ever really equate and I'm wandering to the answer. It, no, did, that's good. it didn't really, it didn't really equate to me as risk because, um, I was committed to being inventive and I was committed to being a really big resource for whoever I was working with or working for. Um, and, uh, so therefore if this thing didn't work, it's okay. I'd go find the next thing. Mm. And maybe that's, maybe that's how all entrepreneurs are cut in the cloth that way. Um, but I, you know, I was just really, in, I mean, I've, I haven't interviewed for a job in a long time, but I've got I offered by every job I've interviewed for, you know, maybe that's because I'm a good salesman or maybe that's just because like I, if I'm going to interview for something, I'm really going to show up hundred percent. And I'm like, I'm here for you. Like, let's talk about this company and where you guys are headed and how can I be a big part of that future? Yeah. And so, um, there's probably another answer to that question though, about risk. Um, are there any decisions yeah. that you wish you would have made differently or something that you would have changed? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you about a risk I didn't take. Um, thinking, I mean, and I've got lots of gratitude for, I mean, I love the church and listeners can't see air quotes, but I love the big idea that like, that there is a, an organized uh, group of people that's out to go make people's lives better or invite them into a really great way of living. I, I believe in that. And I separate that from the idea of like this religious thing. I don't care about that as much as I care about like what can happen when people organize themselves around creating health and wholeness in the world around them. Um, so I'm really inspired by that. And I have lots of love for Mosaic. Um, but I think back about risks I didn't take then was being um, willing to lose my job. You know, like I think just like when you're in any, any organization, there are things that come up that you've got some maybe some differing opinions on. And uh, that's a, it's a thing I think about around like what would have happened, what could have happened if I would really been willing to stand on some principles of mine or speak up instead of waiting my turn at times, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, so that's a risk I really didn't take. And, you know, who knows if that would have been a gift to the organization or it would have been my quick exit to the organization. Who knows, right? But I avoided that um, and just kept doing my, my thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I mean, and, I mean, I'm not there anymore, not for any of those reasons. Um, but I think that's how a lot of people, like, uh, settle in to just having careers that suck. Mm -hmm. You know, and they just start putting on the edit button and not listen to themselves, not listen to that urging, not listen to that lump in their throat. I listen to the butterflies in their stomach when they know they should really step out. Mm -hmm. If they're being really authentic and, and cared about how they viewed themselves um, and were being true to themselves. I mean, Kierkegaard has this quote where he says, men find a level of despair that's tolerable and call it happiness. Mm. And the uh, first time I heard that just turned me over because I thought, oh, that's how I live my life. <laughs> you know, from time to time, it's just like, oh, this is fine. Yeah, this is fine. This is fine. You know, and once you just get over the fine and say, no, 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 my days are numbered. I don't know how long I've got and I got to go full tilt um, and make this thing happen and decide to live for something bigger than myself, decide to live for more people than myself. Mm -hmm. Then I think risk 
um, it becomes an invitation, mm-hmm. right? Because I need, because risk essentially is what? It's like it's we are putting ourselves or mostly our view of ourselves or the potential um, financial reward or the, the equality of a relationship. We put all those things at risk or at stake. Right. Um, I say when we do that, then our best self shows up because now we're freaking alive because now we got to show up. It's not about survival anymore and just making things getting by yeah. with quotes. Yeah. Uh, but now, but I say when we choose that lifestyle, then we're really full tilt. Like, oh, this moment now needs me to show up 100%. And so we end up getting some really exponential results because of the way in which I've chosen to interpret the choice, right? So the risk could be... Um, I could see it as potential failure or all the worst case scenarios. And that's, and then we do that if we don't want to take it, but if we see it as all the potential upside, then we interpret it in such a way that we want to take it. And yeah, we'll take all the possibilities. This might not work out. Like, no, like Jason and I were talking about this new business. We have really blunt conversations. This might not work out. You might not like me when you get this close. And we were roommates in a one bedroom with another guy, three dudes in a one bedroom in MacArthur Park. Uh, LA people don't know what that, or non-LA people don't know what that is. That's like the Central American ghetto. And we, you know, lived as bachelors in that space. We've been really close, three beds in one room. Uh, so, but it might not work out, right? Or I might blow it. I might blow it with a client. I might, who knows? But we're in light of all that. We still gonna are gonna press forward. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess that's my, that's such a good question to help me think about that because it's the way I've interpreted risk that it it didn't feel like risk. No, I I think that's huge because what you're saying is it's, it's a matter of perspective. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, when I, every time I start with a new client, I'm scared, Mm -hmm. right? I'm nervous. Like before the call, I'm freaking out. I'm like reading over all their homework they did. And you know, do I have what it takes to make a difference with this guy in this one hour? It's the first call. I mean, if I'm in his shoes, if this guy doesn't perform in one hour, I'm out, dude. Give me my money back. And I'd, I'd probably do it, right? Yeah. Uh, but I get nervous. They're always nervous, and I'm nervous because we don't know what's about to happen. You know, we just got to show up, and I make the choice that the person on the other side of this phone or this Skype session is the most important person in the world to me. It's a really fun choice because everything else goes away. And uh, then we just show up and play ball together yeah. and see what comes of it, right? So... Uh, in that regard, I really enjoy the potential of, um, of risk. I just, in my work, I call it like living at stake, mm-hmm. like throwing yourself, like for anybody starting a business, like just deciding this is really important and just getting clear about what results we want. I mean, I remember the first month I started my coaching practice, I didn't have any clients yet. And a buddy of mine did a big gift to me and he didn't know he was doing it. He just said, well, how many clients are you going to get this month? I hadn't even thought about it. I just started saying, oh, I'm a coach. Like, you know, as you're at cocktail parties. Yeah, sure. You know, oh, what are you doing now? You always get that question. So you got to make up something. And so I just started saying, oh, I'm a coach. And knowing in my head, I don't have any clients yet, but I've just already started. And they ask me questions. I'm just making stuff up, seeing what works for me, like what felt authentic. Anyway, so my buddy uh, said, how many clients are you going to get this month? And I said, uh, eight. I get eight clients. And then as soon as I said it, it was pretty frightening. Uh, but then my, but now my mind was looking for a way to make that true. Right. Right. Which is very different than, Oh, I'm just going to try to get some, whatever. Very different. The word try to do something versus what I'm committed to. Um, so when I said I was committed to eight, I just told my brain, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for eight. And I got eight clients in the first 21 days. 
That's excellent. Yeah, I'll forget the first day. I got three clients in a day. It was like everyone went to freaking Disneyland. Like, oh my gosh, this is working. I don't even, they don't even know what they're signing up for. Neither do I. <laughs> but they're paying me. Yeah. So, um, so the interpretation of of the um, significance of the choices. Usually, people make a choice so significant that it gives them a big back door, and they should say no to it. But I say, uh, if I make a choice and uh, it is what it is. Like, I'm just going to make this choice and throw myself at it. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to move on to the next choice. That's it. Yeah. Like for me. And that brings, that brings a lot of friendliness with the idea of risk yeah. because of that interpretation. Oh, what a good conversation. Um, that concludes the first part of our interview with Adrian. You are definitely going to want to hear more from the second half of our interview with Adrian where we dig into really some of the key ways that each of us can can really create for ourselves the future that we want and the power of the decisions that we make and really what it means to truly get clear. Good stuff. There is true power with true clarity. So get it. Got to get clear. Thank you, Adrian, for this interview uh, titled The Entrepreneur's Dilemma. And actually, this interview with Adrian uh, between Tim and Adrian was was so good that we've split it up into two. So I'm letting the cat out of the bag a little bit. And we're going to have a, a part two to this interview coming out next week. So hopefully you got just a, a ton out of this. Uh, thank you so much again to Adrian for helping us out. And we'll thank you again after next next week's episode. Uh, to all of you, please do us a huge favor. Head over to iTunes and leave us a review that helps other people find us uh, and, and share the word. Spread the love. Let other people know that you've learned something from this podcast and maybe they can too. Until next week, let's ignite and transform humanity. Humanity.